0: Scattered throughout Europe, you might find these monuments or columns that were raised in thankfulness to God when the plague known as Black Death was finally subsiding. They are scattered throughout there to celebrate the end of that in the 14th century. In the 17th century, the plague began again in London, and by the time it had taken its toll, nearly 70,000 people had died. By the 17th century, the medical community, even though not very equipped to determine the causes, tried to figure out a way that they might be able to stave off this disease. And the physicians of that day and time determined in their own mind that what caused the disease was the pollution in the air around London. And if they could just expel the diseased air from the lungs of the people who were sick and get good air into them, then it might save their lives. And so what doctors did was they got patients that were able to be out around rose gardens, and they would have them circle around rose bushes and take deep breaths of the fragrance of the roses that were growing there in the hopes that the good air, the, the fragrant air of the rose might displace the bad air of the disease inside of them. For those patients who were not able to be able to walk they would take rose petals and put them in their pockets and they would scatter rose petals around their bed and they would burn rose petals and they would place the ashes of the rose petals underneath their nostrils so that as they breathed in the ashes they hoped it would trigger a sneeze which would then release the bad air and they would breathe in again the fragrance of the rose now we know today what caused that disease and it certainly wasn't the pollution that was in the air But that odd ritual of the rose gave way to a rhyme that was first sung by a man who pushed the burial cart. Ring around the roses, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Who would dream that such an innocent nursery rhyme had grown out of such deep tragedy? But the last line of the rhyme is as true today as it was during the time of the Black Plague. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And since we all fall down, the story that we celebrate at Easter becomes incredibly indispensable. It is the promise of a second chance. Now, it's hard to be in the midst of the NCAA tournament and be oblivious to basketball. I'm assuming that you all have enjoyed watching some of the games that have been on TV, but have you ever picked up on the fact that points that are scored after an offensive rebound are called second-chance points? It's another opportunity to get ahead. This series that we're in is focused on the story of the prodigal son. And the heartbeat of that parable is second chances. Last week, we journeyed with the prodigal son to a far distant land where he wasted his inheritance in wild living and then ended up, when he had no money left, feeding pigs for a pagan farmer in that faraway land. It is there, folks, in the muck and the mire of the pig pen that he comes to this conclusion. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. Verse 17. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The home the young man so desperately wanted to escape now promised the way of escape from a life of misery with the pigs. It's true, we so seldom know what we have until we lose it. There in the muddy pigsty, an image comes to mind. It is the picture of his dad, kind and gracious to the men who worked for him. And so he reasons, if I just go back, if I confess my sin, if I just say, hire me on, I'll be a lot better off than I am now, and maybe, maybe I'll get a second chance. Folks, I never cease to be amazed at sin's stupidity. Jonathan Parker recently broke into a home in Martinsburg, Pennsylvania, and stole two diamonds worth $3,500. The heist had gone so smoothly and had taken far less time than he thought that Parker decided he would take time while he was in that house to log on to check his Facebook account. (laughs) The smart thing would be to log off when you're done checking your Facebook account. But since he didn't, the authorities were able to apprehend him pretty quickly afterwards. And you think, you know, my goodness. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think the guy's hard drive has been crashed for a long time, is what I think. (laughs) How could somebody be so foolish, you ask? Well, folks, simply put, that's what sin does to us. Like a cancer, sinful choices eat away at the moral fiber of our souls, paralyzing our wisdom and our common sense. So wise up now and leave the stupidity of sin far behind. Until you leave it behind, you can never find your way back home. The parable continues. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Quick! bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and so they began to celebrate. Now what you have to understand is that this part of the story would have been as much of a surprise to Jesus' audience as that part where a Jewish boy ends up feeding pigs for a pagan farmer. Surely, they're thinking as they're listening, surely the father will punish the son for all the waste and sinful indulgence. I mean, after all, a typical father is going to be stern when something like this happens. A typical father is going to be skeptical. Is this really real? After all, he comes back now that he doesn't have any money. Yes, that's true. A typical father would do that. But the father in this parable isn't typical. He doesn't fit the mold It's as if whatever happened in the long months of his son's absence was inconsequential compared to him finding his way back home. In his great joy, the Father forgave everything. Wait a minute, we object. That's not fair. There have to be consequences for actions. Ah, but there were consequences, and the father would have noticed them immediately. The prodigal's clothes were tattered and stained. They reeked from the smell and the stench of tending pigs. And what was left of his robe, once glorious, hung on a frame far gaunter than when he left home. Hunger peered through his weary eyes. His stomach was empty, and so were his pockets. There had been consequences, all right. And yet, to us, it seems like old dad let him off the hook. Far too easy, doesn't it? I don't know if it's because we're Americans, but we're, we're really fascinated by this business of fairness. We crave fairness. We want the scales of justice to balance all the time. And when life in this broken world isn't fair, we cry foul. But can I ask you this morning, is justice what we really want? Is fairness what we really need? The heartbeat of this parable isn't justice. The heartbeat of this parable is grace. Grace, a a treasure that is infinite in value. Grace, a gift that makes glad. Grace, God's unmerited favor. All wonderful definitions, but they fall short of the intensity of what God's grace is all about. Can I remind you the story of when grace changed my understanding in life once for all i was a grad student at cincinnati christian university and i was in a class called the doctrine of grace being taught by dr jack cotrell and and one day in the class he introduced grace in a way i had never thought of or, or anticipated as a matter of fact he introduced it as the opposite of the law and i was puzzled over that you know i i, I kind of knew what he was talking about, sort of, because as Christians, I know we're no longer under the law of God as a means of being saved, that we don't keep the law in order to be saved. I had certainly preached that being good wasn't good enough, and that we're saved only by God's grace. I knew all that, but I'd never heard the concept of, of grace being the actual opposite of law. Now, now, folks, all law systems work virtually the same, whether they're physical or governmental or moral. Dr. Cotra went on to lay out the, the tenets of law. He said, you know, keep the law, obey the rules, and you will escape uh, the penalty. But you break the law, and you will suffer the penalty. I got that, although it did bring to mind unpleasant memories of speed zones, police cruisers, and red flashing lights in my rearview mirror. But I get the fact, you break the law, you're going to suffer the penalty, Okay. But then he went on to draw this opposite analogy. This is what I was prepared for. He said, but under grace, if you break the law, you escape the penalty. But if you keep the law, you suffer the penalty. Wait a minute, I'm thinking, that's not fair. Hypothetically, if a person could actually keep God's law perfectly, then under grace he or she would have to suffer. That's cruel. And so all too quickly my hand went up and I said, how can that possibly be fair? And he smiled and agreed that it wasn't fair. But then grace itself isn't fair, and he proceeded to remind me that there had been one who had lived the law perfectly No mistakes, no errors. He'd kept every command perfectly, but by the rules of grace, he had to suffer the penalty, and the suffering was cruel. And as a result, all of us who have broken the law can now escape the penalty. Suddenly, the incredible impact of what Jesus accomplished at the cross hit me like a ton of bricks. I'd thought of grace in numerous ways throughout my lifetime, but I'd never thought of it as unfair. And to this day, my favorite single word to describe grace is unfair, because it brought me to the profound conclusion that what Jesus suffered was unfair, so that I might have what is also unfair, but so wonderful. We claim we want divine justice in this world, but we don't really want justice. I don't want God to be fair with me. I just want God to be gracious with me. When it comes to my salvation, don't give me justice, God, give me grace. You see, grace is the light that helps us find our way back home. And if grace is what Jesus bought at the cross with his sacrifice, then a second chance is what he guaranteed us with his resurrection. From the day that Noah and his family stepped off of the ark into a brand new world, God's story has been about second chances. Second chances fill those pages of the Bible, but for just a couple moments, let me take a look at only those that surround the Easter story. Does the name Malchus ring a bell with any of you? Malchus was the name of the high priest's servant who walked right alongside Judas, leading this group of men to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and crucify him. When they arrived at the Garden, Peter, wanting to defend his Lord, Jesus draws out his sword, takes a swipe at Malchus, and all he gets is his ear, and as the ear falls to the ground, in the tenseness of that moment, Jesus reaches over and restores the ear of Malchus, giving him a second chance to hear the truth about Jesus and discover His grace. Later on that evening, around the camp, the the, the fire there in the courtyard at the high priest's house. While Jesus was inside in the trial, somebody looked at Peter and said, you're one of his followers. And Peter said, I'm not a follower. I don't even know the man. Denied even knowing Jesus. And with the crow of a rooster reverberating in his memory, Jesus gives Peter a second chance to love him more, to become a true disciple. And Peter becomes one of the great preachers of the grace of God. At Calvary, next to Jesus, hung a thief whose whole life had likely been a mess, and it wasn't ending well on a cross either. So with much effort, he said, Jesus. Now remember, the name Jesus means Savior. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And at that word of faith, Jesus gave him a second chance at life. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, the last thing that thief ever stole was to snatch his soul out of the jaws of death and surrender it to the King of Grace. And who could forget the story of Thomas? The disciple who wasn't there on the night of the resurrection when Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples. And when they said, we have seen the risen Christ, he said, I will not believe until I can touch the nail scars in his hand. A week later, Thomas is with the disciples. Jesus appears again and gives Thomas a second Chance to believe. And this time Thomas falls at the nail pierced feet of Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. All these stories and scores like them are included to remind us that our God is a God of second chances. Could any truth be grander? Could any promise be more hopeful? Easter is the greatest second chance story of all time. And you're saying that, you know, okay. So what? How how does this make my life any different, and and how should I respond knowing this? Well, I, I think knowing that impacts our lives in tremendous ways. So let me give you some ways that if you've been given a second chance by the Lord, you ought to act. Here's the first one. Extend a second chance. If you've been given a second chance, then extend a second chance to someone else. Like the father in the parable, do the unexpected. Catch people off guard with your kindness. Surprise them with a fresh perspective of the Lord through your actions. You've heard it said, you never get a second chance to make a good first impression. So, act like a second chancer so that people will get a good first impression of Jesus Christ. Nothing will draw people to God better than when His people are known as the givers of second chances. Now, hear me carefully this morning. I'm not talking about being a doormat so that anybody can walk on you or constantly enabling somebody's sinful behavior. Uh, that's not a second chance. That's just being lazy and, and, um, and wimpy. A second chance is forgiveness to help somebody improve their life, to give them hope, to give them confidence. When the Edison laboratory was working on the incandescent light bulb and they were trying to figure out a way that they could make this such that it would light the world, uh, I understand that it literally took hours upon hours to create a single bulb to test a new filament. And so each bulb was pretty precious. When they finished one, Edison turned around, gave it to an errand boy, and asked him to take that bulb upstairs to the laboratory so they could test that filament. The boy turned around, took a step toward the stairs, missed his step, fell, and the bulb shattered. Edison kindly reassured him, turned to his team, and told him that they would start work on a new bulb. Hours later, when that bulb was finished, Edison got up from his desk, walked over to the same errand boy, handed him the new bulb, and said, would you please take it upstairs to have it tested? Wow, you talk about second chances. Can you imagine what that did to that young man to instill hope and confidence? Can you imagine what it will do when you extend a second chance to others and give them a hope and confidence in Christ? God has given you a second chance. Now pass it on. Here's something else. Be positive. People who have been given a second chance tend to be happier people. I read of a a woman whose response to her brand new faith in Christ was this. This is what she said. I am so glad I found the Lord. I have an uncle I used to hate so much. I vowed I would never go to his funeral. But now, she said, I'd be happy to go to it any (laughs) time. That's not the happy I'm talking about, but she's getting there, all right? She's getting there. Live your life so joyfully that people want to be around you. Be pleasant in your demeanor so people will want to be your friend. Joy is infectious. Some of you may be thinking, well, God didn't make me a happy person. Are you really going to blame that on God this morning? Quit being a grump. You've had a second chance. Act like it think like it, smile like it, be happy and positive. And then here's something else, live life to the fullest as you prepare for the inevitable. The USA Network has been advertising a new reality show called The Moment. Now, what grabbed my attention in the advertisement is this tagline, every dream deserves a second chance. Boy, I like that. Our time in this world is limited, but the resurrection gives our dreams lasting purpose. So make the most of who you are, make the most of what you have, and don't stop dreaming about tomorrow because tomorrow, because of the resurrection, is worth living for. In an Ask Marilyn column, you know, that appears in the Parade magazine, Bob writes about being depressed. Because he had just turned 50, figured that his life was winding down in this world, and Bob doesn't believe in an afterlife. So he asked Marilyn if there was a logical answer or a logical way for him to handle all this without being depressed. And Marilyn answered this, sure, there's a way, and here it is. If you're enjoying life, you can't be feeling sad. And if you're not enjoying life, you shouldn't be unhappy that it won't last forever. Really, Marilyn, is that the best you can do? I I guess I shouldn't be too critical. After all, if someone doesn't believe in the promise of the resurrection and an afterlife, there isn't much hope to offer. If Bob's right, then all of our dreams do end at the grave. If you're right, Bob, I'm sorry. That is depressing, and I have no answer for you. But if the resurrection is true, then there is hope. And that's what makes our celebration so important this morning because nothing is more important than the second chance we have through the risen Savior. It is the greatest dream of all, a second chance at life. Let me ask you this morning, who would you rather have for a friend the teenager who is raising money to build a well in Africa because she loves God so much and wants to give others a second chance. The man whose children are grown so he begins to mentor young men and share his faith journey with them. The senior saint who is bedfast in a nursing home but keeps on writing letters of encouragement to others in the Lord. Or depressed 50 year old Bob who's still trying to figure out what Marilyn's answer means. Who do you want for a friend? The the answer is obvious. Somebody who lives in the joy of a second chance. You see, those who believe in the resurrection never stop living the dream and making the most of life. Bob does have one thing right, though. Most of us resist the thought of dying. Entrepreneur Ian Robertson has embarked upon a new business in the United Kingdom simply called, are you ready for this, Rent-A-Mourner. It's designed to help people who won't have many folks, if any folks, mourn their passing. It's a second chance to have friends at death because you didn't take time to make friends while you were alive. So for about $68, an actor or an actress will study your obituary and will spend two hours at your viewing pretending to be your friend. Folks, there is nothing we can do to make dying better, not even rent a mourner. Death has always been the black plague upon humanity. Like an enemy, it just keeps destroying us. The nursery rhyme sings, ring around the roses, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And there is nothing any of us can do to breathe new life into such decay. But there is one. There is one. The Old Testament calls him the rose, the rose of Sharon, who has conquered death's decay and through his resurrection breathes new life into us. Folks, can I tell you that in all my years of ministry, I've done hundreds of funerals. And if I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, if I didn't know anything about the Bible nor had read anything in it, if I had never spent a day in the life of the church, if all I had as my witness was these funerals that I've been a part of, I would want to be a Christian more than anything because I'm here to tell you there is an incredible difference between the funeral of a believer and a non-believer. And seeing the difference has convinced me beyond all shadow of a doubt that the risen Christ is the only one who can give us a second chance to beat death. Grace isn't fair, I know, but aren't you glad it isn't? In the parable when the prodigal trods his home, the father runs to meet him, an undignified act, by the way, for a father in that day and time. He throws his arms around the sun, covers him with kisses despite the grime and the stench of a life wasted on sin and swine. A beautiful robe is fitted over a filthy body. A gold ring is slipped onto a grungy finger. Clean sandals are slipped onto manure-encrusted feet. The contrast was overwhelming. Only the grace of God could be so oblivious to the tattered rags of our past and be so willing to give us a second chance at life. Can I leave you with the greatest second chance invitation you'll ever get? First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.